And so uh, we want to encourage you to have your message notes out as well with a pen or pencil. There'll be some blanks to fill in and a place for you to jot down some notes as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. We'll be picking up in verse 16 in just a few moments. So when Christine and I were first dating in those early years, one of our favorite date places was Tri-City Park. Tri-City Park's down in Orange County in the city of Placentia, but it's really close also to the borders of Fullerton and Brea. That's why they call it Tri-City Park. And so we would go, especially in the evenings, and we liked to walk alongside the lake in that park. It was so pretty, and we'd watch the ducks and the geese swim by, and and it was just pretty with all the grass and the lake and the ducks and everything. We would just hold hands and talk and have a great time there early in our relationship. Well, one night we decided, uh, and actually it was Christine, she was the brains of the operation, she decided to bring a picnic blanket. And we were just going to stretch it out on one of the little grass hills that was sloped down toward the lake. And so we would just sit on the blanket and have a wonderful evening looking at the ducks and the stars and all of that. And, and so we spread out the blanket on the little green hillside, and it was going so well. The ducks are swimming by. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was perfect until we heard that unmistakable sound. And it went kind of like this. Yeah, you know what was happening. Yeah, some genius in uh, grounds maintenance decided to turn the sprinklers on. And so I jumped to my feet and I needed just a, a few quick seconds to come up with a perfect plan. And so in those few split seconds, I'm thinking, Dane, don't blow it. You need to show your new girlfriend that chivalry is not dead. And so I thought to myself, here's what I'll do. I will grab my jacket and I will place it over Christine's head. And together, side by side, we'll run up that hillside out of the way of the sprinklers. And I'll keep my girlfriend dry. And I thought to myself, this plan is perfect. And so ready, set, go. I'm ready to carry out my perfect plan. I turn to where Christine is seated, sitting, and I realize there's just one small flaw in my plan. Uh, Christine is already gone. (laughs) Evidently, Christine had a plan of her own. Don't think, just get to safety. And so she's already at the top of the hill. So there I am standing in the sprinklers, looking up at my girlfriend, who's completely dry on top of the hill. And she has this look on her face like, way to go, Lancelot. (laughs) You're a day late and a dollar short. And uh, I think back on that, and I realize there have been so many times in the course of our 25 years of being married where I have toiled over decisions for days, sometimes for weeks, trying to come up with a perfect solution. And I would share it with Christine, and she came up with the perfect solution in like five minutes. And and honestly, it, it really gets me kind of upset at times. The way she does that. But you know what? I am so thankful for my wife and her wisdom. And I'm even more thankful that Jesus Christ is the greatest problem solver in the universe. Amen? When my back is against the wall and I'm in over my head, Jesus has both the strength and the answers I need. Jesus has both the strength and the answers you need. Time and again, Jesus saves the day. Amen? And he's going to do it again here in John chapter 6. And we'll pick up in verse 16 in just a few moments. 
Well, last Sunday we explored the first 15 verses of John 6 where we learned about the only miracle of Jesus that's recorded in all four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this miracle that we looked at last week. Jesus was coming off a very busy season of ministry. So as John 6 begins, Jesus is badly in need of some alone time with his apostles. He needs time to rest and think and pray. But his time of rest was short-lived, wasn't it? The crowds watched Jesus and his apostles get into a boat and sail to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So several thousand families hurried on foot around the lake to meet up with Jesus on the other side. Even though Jesus was physically and emotionally exhausted, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, didn't he? It says there, I believe it's in the Gospel of Mark, that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he had compassion on them. And we read in one of those accounts that he taught them about the kingdom of heaven. We read in another account that Jesus healed the sick that were in the crowd that day. And eventually, as evening approaches, the people are hungry. So Jesus performs one of his most famous miracles. He takes one boy's little lunch, five little biscuits, and two sardines, and he blesses them as he looks up to heaven, and he breaks the bread and the fish, hands it out to his 12 apostles, and Jesus multiplies it, doesn't he? To feed some 10,000 people. Because it wasn't just 5,000 men. Remember, women and children were there as well that weren't counted. And so some 10,000 people Jesus feeds with these five little biscuits and two sardines. It's pretty amazing. They collect 12 baskets of leftovers once everyone has had all that they could eat. And we saw last week that when we place our little bit of nothing in Jesus' hands, Jesus specializes in working miracles, doesn't he? He specializes in taking your little bit of nothing and transforming it into a whole lot of something. Isn't that just like Jesus? He takes your whole lot of nothing and transforms it into a whole lot of something. That's what he does. At the end of verse 15, we read that Jesus withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And that's where we pick up this morning. So follow along in your Bibles as we pick up in verse 16 of John chapter 6. If you're there, please say amen. Amen. Here's how it reads. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. May God bless us as we study and apply his word to our lives today. Well, unlike the feeding of the 5,000, the miracle of Jesus walking on water is not recorded in all four gospel accounts. It is, however, recorded in three of the four. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John. And so like we did last week, at times when John doesn't give us 
quite the detail we'd like, we'll refer to Matthew and Mark. In fact, they give us more details, uh, both of them, than John did in this small little account we just read. Now, since a picture is worth a thousand words, I want to share with you a wonderful clip once again from the Chosen series. Now, this is from the very last episode uh, that has been released. It was the season finale of season three, Jesus Walking on the Water. I think they do a marvelous job of combining the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and John. Watch this. Everyone get into the boat and row back across to Capernaum. What about you? (laughs) It's been a long three days. I need some time alone to pray. But there are storm clouds on the horizon. Let me stay with you, Rabbi. I'll keep watch. Be fine. All of you go. Hurry. Follow Simon. You all did so well today. Shalom, shalom. Shalom, shalom. Shalom, shalom. shalom. Simon, no! Are you out of your mind? If you are, 
who you say you are, bid me to step out of this boat. You have the faith to walk on this water? Absolutely. You can do whatever you command. And if you command the water to hold me, I will walk on it. If I call you to me, you would step out in faith? Yes! Then come to me. I have much planned for you, Simon, including hard things. Just keep your eyes on me. I promise you. Pretty cool, huh? Well, the uh, account of Jesus walking on water isn't just recorded here in John 6. It's also recorded in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 34, and also in Mark 6, verses 45 through 53. Now, because this crowd on the east side of the Sea of Galilee was completely misguided about who Jesus was and what his mission was, Jesus found it necessary to quickly distance himself and the twelve apostles from this crowd he had just fed. So both Matthew and Mark point out that after the apostles had collected the twelve baskets full of leftover bread, Jesus directed them to get into a boat and cross over to the west side of the Sea of Galilee. They're close to Capernaum. He didn't want uh, them to wait until morning. He didn't even want them to wait a few hours deeper into the evening. He basically says immediately, get in the boat and head out now. 
Well, the disciples did what Jesus told them to do. They climb into the boat and they start rowing to the other side. And Jesus carried out his part of the game plan. He dismissed the crowd. And then according to Matthew and Mark, Jesus went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Now notice what John tells us in the second half of verse 17. He says, by now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. Verse 18, a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. They rode three or three and a half miles. We'll stop there for now. And so there, this Sea of Galilee, interesting area of geography there in the Middle East. And so the Sea of Galilee is situated in this very large gorge uh, between the Arabian Desert on the east and the Mediterranean Sea in the west. And so the Sea of Galilee, interestingly, is almost 700 feet below sea level. And so the Dead Sea gets a lot of press for being the lowest body of water on earth. The Dead Sea, I believe, is over 1,000 feet below sea level. But the Sea of Galilee is pretty low as well, almost 700 feet below sea level in this gorge. It's being fed in the north by the headwaters of the Jordan River. And so there's a ravine up there north of the Sea of Galilee. And so the Jordan River is situated in this ravine. The Sea of Galilee in the south is situated in a larger ravine. And so it's very common for winds to come whipping through those ravines out onto the Sea of Galilee, causing all sorts of crazy storms. So even today, if you go to the Holy Land, small boats, small fishing boats, rowboats are really dissuaded from going out on the sea whenever there's any sort of impending storm. Because even today, little boats, even with a little outboard motor, oftentimes will get themselves in over their heads if they get out in the middle of the sea and the winds kick up. And so Jesus tells them to go out in this a video depiction. Matthew says, hey, there's storm clouds. You sure you want us to do that? And Jesus says, no, go immediately. And so likely several of these guys, including Peter, who were seasoned fishermen, who knew the weather conditions on the Sea of Galilee like the back of their hand, they probably saw some storm clouds and were second-guessing Jesus' command. But they here were doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. Why would he send them out into the middle of the sea when he knew a storm was coming? He had a plan, didn't he? He had a plan. And we just saw a, a visual depiction of that plan being unfolded. We read there in verses 18 and 19, the strong wind was blowing, waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were what? They were terrified. Uh, any wonder why they were terrified? You know, this is pretty crazy. When you've been rowing all night long, you are tired, you are wet. You are sore. You're frustrated because why did Jesus send us out in the middle of this storm? Certainly he knew this storm was a brewing. And so these guys are experiencing all these emotions and they're tired. They're exhausted. And all of a sudden they see what they think to be a ghost. Matthew tells us that the boat was buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Mark tells us that Jesus saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Since it was Passover time when this miracle took place, we know that it was the time of the full moon. So possibly as Jesus was up on that little hillside praying, possibly the lake was lit up more than usual because of the full moon and he could see them several miles away struggling at the oars. Maybe if others had been sitting next to Jesus, they could have seen the same thing. But I tend to think that this was something only Jesus could see. Because after all, the wind was blowing and the, the waves were choppy. And I don't think... An average person could have seen them from a hillside some three, four, five miles away. 
And so I believe this was a divine thing. Jesus could see them even in the middle of that dark storm. Amen. And so when you think about that, I think it's pretty encouraging. At times you might feel like you're invisible to most of the world. Nobody sees you. Nobody knows what you're going through except for Jesus. Amen. No matter what you're going through, no matter how many dark clouds are surrounding you, Jesus knows exactly where you are and he knows exactly what you need. Jesus sees you. I was thinking this last week about what we read in Genesis chapter 16. I believe it's chapter 16. Uh, that's when Hagar, uh, remember Abraham married to Sarah. God had promised Abraham and Sarah that they would bear the son of the promise. And uh, Sarah gets a little jumpy and ha- gives her handmaid Hagar to Abraham and says, Hey, just take my handmaid and have sexual relations with her. Maybe the child of the promise is supposed to come through her. Well, once she's pregnant, Sarai begins to despise her handmaid, and they basically kick Hagar out of the house. And so there she is out in the desert all by herself, pregnant with a baby coming a few months later. And God speaks to her and tells her that that child she's going to bear is going to be a blessed child as well. And she gives God a name there in Genesis. She calls him El-Rohi, which translates the God who sees me. Isn't that good? It's one of the names of God. He is the God who sees me. And Jesus Christ, since he is God, we know that Jesus Christ is the God who sees me. Amen? No matter what you're going through, he's the God who sees you. When Jesus saw his disciples struggling to carry out the command he had given them to row to the other side of the sea, Jesus decided to walk right up and fix the problem. That's just what he does. He's a problem fixer. Matthew and Mark both point out the approximate time of day. They say it was around the fourth watch of the night. Well, what time of day is that? Well, on the Jewish clock, daytime was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., nighttime was 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., and they divided the night into four watches of three hours each. So the first watch of the night, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., the second watch, 9 p.m. to midnight, the third watch, midnight to 3 a.m., and the fourth watch of the night, 3 a.m., to 6 a.m. So it was about the fourth watch of the night. In other words, it was around 3 a.m. when Jesus comes walking out on the water. The disciples had been struggling with the oars virtually all night long. They were tired and wet and frustrated and probably more than a little bit nauseous. How would you feel bouncing up and down on these waves in a dinky little boat for hours on end? Some of these, yeah, exactly. Some of these guys were seasoned fishermen, but I tell you what, I, I'd be heaving. I, I couldn't handle it. So they were miserable. Well, the disciples looked up from their misery and they couldn't believe their eyes. They saw a man approaching them who appeared to be walking on top of the water. Strangest thing they'd ever seen. Matthew records for us what the disciples said when they saw the strange figure walking on the water. It's a ghost. It's a ghost. Run away. Run away. Or at least row away. They were scared. They thought it was a ghost. They cried out in fear, Matthew says. So if it wasn't bad enough that they were cold and wet and exhausted and nauseous, now they're scared to death as some sort of poltergeist is hovering over the surface of the water and closing in on them. They're scared to death. They're powerless to do anything about it. All they could do is cry out in fear like a bunch of three-year-olds in a thunderstorm. But then... The ghostly figure speaks in verse 20. It is I. Don't be afraid. Notice Jesus didn't have to say his name. Hey, everybody, it's me. Remember me, Jesus of Nazareth. 
I'm the one that multiplied the, the, the biscuits and the, the sardines. Remember me, your rabbi? Yeah, it's me over here. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He doesn't say his name, does he? Because we read over in John chapter, uh, was it John chapter 10, I believe, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know me and they recognize my voice. So he didn't need to say his name. They recognize the voice of their rabbi. They recognize the voice of their Lord and Savior. Let me ask you, do you recognize the voice of your Lord and Savior? If he were to speak to you this afternoon out of the blue, would you recognize his voice? And so I I would have loved to have been a, a little fly on the side of that little boat when Jesus said, it is I. Imagine how they must have responded when he said the message. I like how it translates it. It's me. It's all right. Don't be afraid. But how did they respond? I would imagine they were talking to each other. Oh, no. The ghost sounds like Jesus. And the ghost, as he's getting closer, he, he kind of looks like Jesus. But there's no way that could be Jesus because the dude's walking on water. That couldn't be Jesus. But Jesus says, it's me. It's all right. Don't be afraid. Well, according to Matthew's account, Peter speaks up. He says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And to Peter's surprise, Jesus responds, all right, come. (laughs) Imagine the shock he received when Jesus answered that way. Come. You want to dance? Let's dance. You want to walk on this water with me? Then you sling those legs over the side of that little boat and you start walking on water with me. Come on, Peter. Let's see what you got. You know what the other disciples must have been thinking when Peter spoke up. Good going, Peter. Hey, everybody. Did you hear what Peter just said to the ghost? Uh, He's going to walk on water with the ghost. All right, Peter, go get him. Uh, And then all of a sudden they see Peter throwing his legs over the edge of the boat and transferring his weight to his feet. And now they're thinking, whoa, he's serious about this. Don't do it, Peter. There's too much to live for. You, you, You can't do this. But he must have pushed their arms away and pushed himself away from that boat because we see that he started walking on water. Matthew records it. Mark records it as well. He begins walking on water. And he's doing a great job. He's actually walking on water. Wonderful job until he takes his eyes off of Jesus, right? Takes his eyes off of Jesus. Now, what usually happens when we take our eyes off of Jesus? Yeah, we start sinking, don't we? We start getting afraid. We start freaking out. And we start to sink. He takes his eyes off of Jesus and instead he starts focusing on the waves that are crashing at his feet and the flash of the lightning in the distance and the sound of the wind whipping by. And his eyes and his ears and his senses are overwhelmed with the storm around him. He takes his eyes off Jesus. He gets scared. He gets freaked out. And he begins to sink. He begins to sink. Now Peter, he took his eyes off his creator the creator of the wind and the waves. All he could see, hear, and feel were the wind and waves themselves. He immediately became worried and stressed out. He began to think to sink, but thankfully, before his head went under the water, he had the good sense to cry out, Lord, save me. Lord, say, ever been there? You slam on the brakes, and you know your car does not have enough room to come to a complete stop before you hit that wall or that car in front of you. And you say something very similar, Lord, save me. 
My mom has a condensed version of that. She just yells out, Jesus! And you know, it's amazing how many times Jesus has responded to that prayer of my mom. Man, I tell you, when I had that beat-up 73 Super Beetle, that VW Bug, man, we were at the bottom of the Camarillo grade one time, and that thing sputtered, and I'm trying to shift gears to compensate, and that thing is just a pain in the neck. It will not get up the grade, and she prayed it all the way up. It was awesome. Just calling out to Jesus the whole way, and we made it home. There have been times when someone jumps in front of me. My mom happens to be riding shotgun, which is always an unnerving thing for me. But anyway, she's riding shotgun. Car jumps out in front of me. I slam on the brakes. Jesus! And... What happens? Nothing. We escape unscathed because the Lord is so good to us. You ever cried out like Peter did? Lord, save me. Matthew 14, verses 31 through 33. I love how it puts it. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Amen? Amen. Truly, you are the Son of God. And as John tells us in verse 21, the boat immediately reached the shore where they were heading after Jesus climbed into the boat. At first glance, you might think that these three biblical accounts in Matthew, Mark, and John just record for us one miracle, but in actuality, they record four miracles. The first miracle, of course, was that Jesus walked on water. That's pretty cool, isn't it? But there's a second miracle. Jesus empowers Peter to walk on water. That's pretty cool, right? There's a third miracle. As soon as Jesus gets into the boat, he calms the storm. The wind and the waves die down immediately. And then the fourth miracle, they immediately reach their destination. Jesus gets in the boat. Think about this. This is pretty significant. They have been straining at the oars all night long for hours They have been going nowhere fast. Jesus speaks the word, and they immediately reach their destination. Isn't that just like Jesus? He gets us there so much faster than we could ever get there on our own. He does it time and time again. Hmm. Pretty amazing. I uh, just double-checked here in Mark, and I made the mistake a moment ago in saying that Peter... When he walked on water, that's recorded in both Matthew and Mark. It's only recorded actually in Matthew. It's recorded in just Matthew. Well, we go down here, and what I jotted down, we'll put it on the screen here for you. Remember that when we look at a miraculous sign in the Gospel of John, he only records seven of them for us. So every time we see a miraculous sign, we have to ask, what does the sign point to? And so we need to ask that question for Jesus walking on water because John doesn't mention Peter walking on water. He doesn't mention uh, that Jesus calmed the storm. He focuses in on the first of those four miracles, Jesus walking on water himself. And so we ask that question, what does this miraculous sign point to? What does it reveal about Jesus, who he is, and what he came to earth to do? Well, by walking on water, Jesus, I believe, reveals two things about who he is and what he came to earth to do. Number one... He is the Lord of all creation. Amen? Say that with me. He is the Lord of all creation. Even the wind and the waves submit to His will. That's pretty cool, right? He's the Lord of all creation. He can walk on water. How can He do that? It's impossible. Sure, it's impossible, unless you're the Lord of heaven and earth and the Lord of the wind and the waves. 
And then the second lesson, I think, the second thing it points to is that when Jesus' followers are in over their heads and have inadequate strength to go on, Jesus has more than enough strength to rescue and deliver them. Isn't that great? He has more than enough strength. And that leads us to three life lessons that we can pull from this amazing passage and miracle today. So here we go. Lesson number one. Oftentimes after Jesus teaches you a lesson, he will give you a test. So be ready. Jesus isn't teaching you what he's teaching you in order to fill your head with useless knowledge. How many of you have found that to be true? Right? I want you to read this with me. It's so important. I want it to sink in. Oftentimes, after Jesus teaches you a lesson, he will give you a test. So be ready. Jesus isn't teaching you what he's teaching you in order to fill your head with useless knowledge. I like how Warren Wearsby puts it. He writes, The disciples had experienced great joy in being part of a thrilling miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. Now they had to face a storm and learn to trust the Lord more. The feeding of the 5,000 was the lesson, but the storm was the examination after the lesson. Isn't that good? The feeding of the 5,000 was the lesson, but walking on water and trusting him as he came to them on the boat, that was the test, the examination after the lesson. I think it's sad that many Christians have this crazy idea that what we do as Christians, we do simply out of duty. Why do we come to church? Because it's our duty. Why do we study God's Word? Why do we learn about uh, Jonah and the whale? Why do we learn uh, about uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000? Why do we learn about Jesus walking on water? Why do we learn about Noah and the ark? And, and many Christians, well, we do it because of duty. Because God wants us to study His Word. Why do we study His Word every day? Why do we read the Bible as part of our private personal devotion times? Because God wants us to. Why do we pray every day? Because it's our duty. And I'm here to tell you today that that's a bunch of hogwash. We don't do this stuff because of duty. Why do we do what we do as Christians? We go to church because we desperately need the church to make it through the trials up ahead. We have to be in church. We have to be with other believers in Christ because of what's coming down the pike. Why do we study the Word of God? Not because God wants us to win our next game of biblical trivial pursuit. We study the Word of God because we desperately need to be equipped and prepared because temptations are coming. And we want to live a life that's pleasing to God, don't we? You don't study the Word of God. You don't receive the teaching of the Word of God. How are you going to know what God expects of you? You are going to flounder time and time again if you are clueless as to what the will of God is, because you are not studying His Word. Why do we pray? We pray because if we don't maintain a clear line of communication with our commander-in-chief, when the battles come our way, we are going to fall on our faces. We have to be prepared for the battles that are coming. We're going to be toast if we don't keep a clear line of communication with our commander-in-chief. All that to say, everything you learn in church and everything God teaches you through His Word and everything you receive from the Holy Spirit in prayer is deeply practical. It's all deeply practical. Say that with me. It's all deeply practical. Jesus Christ is teaching you and He's strengthening you and He's equipping you for the coming storms. How many of you know living in this world is really hard? 
How many of you realize that according to biblical prophecy, it's only going to get harder? How dare we be so arrogant to think that we have enough biblical knowledge in our head and a good enough prayer life and decent enough church attendance to be able to stand strong with the tests and trials and tribulations that are coming? How foolish. We're not ready. And so it's critical that we continue meeting and studying the Word of God and making sure that we're learning and being equipped for the coming storms. So when God gives you a wonderful lesson, it's never useless. It's never pointless. He is preparing you because there will be a test. Life lesson number two. The same good shepherd who has led you into green pastures will lead you beside the still waters. Sound familiar? Say that with me. The same good shepherd who has led you into green pastures will lead you beside the still waters. The best known and loved psalm in the Bible is the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. What does Jesus do here in John chapter 6? Thousands are gathering. They are like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus has compassion on them and has them sit down in green pastures. And what happens on the heels of that immediately afterwards? He tells his 12 apostles to get onto a boat. And a few short hours later, as they're straining at the oars and being overwhelmed by the waves and the wind, Jesus comes and brings them to quiet waters. Is that an accident that these two miracles happen one after the other? And I say to you, absolutely no. It's not an accident. Jesus is the good shepherd of the 23rd Psalm. Jesus is the Lord our shepherd, who in Him we have no want. He makes us to lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside the quiet waters. We have times in our life when we're up against some things that are pretty hard and our hearts are troubled and we are hungry and we're tired and we need His peace. And I'm telling you, if you will go to Jesus, He will lead you to green pastures. It may not be easy, but Jesus can give you rest. Remember what He said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There will be times when the storms are raging around us and all you can see are the waves crashing and you can feel the wind blowing and you strain at the oars trying your very best to make it through and it's one dead end after another. Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior who will lead you to quiet waters. Amen? Amen? I hope you'll never look at the 23rd Psalm the same way again. Jesus is my shepherd. I shall not want. Jesus makes me to lie down in green pastures. Jesus will lead me beside still and quiet waters. Some of you need that word today. And I encourage you to claim that today. Jesus isn't just a good shepherd. He is a wonderful good shepherd. Finally, life lesson number three. Somehow in the presence of Jesus, the longest journey is shorter and the hardest battle easier. The quote from William Barclay, isn't that good? I couldn't have said it better, so I'm just quoting him on this third lesson. Read this with me. 
Somehow in the presence of Jesus, the longest journey is shorter and the hardest battle easier. It's amazing how much easier it was for the apostles to get to shore once Jesus was on the boat, right? Man, they're, they're, they're dying trying to row that thing without Jesus on the boat. They're getting nowhere fast. But once Jesus gets on the boat, it is so much easier. And that's how it always works. It's always easier when Jesus is helping us out. You see, life is hard with, with Jesus, but it's much harder without Him. Isn't that true? It always amazes me when I think of the many people around us, most people around us, they live life without Jesus Christ. And that just blows my mind. Life is hard with Jesus, but it's so much harder without Him. How many of you have discovered that to be true? You've tried life without Jesus, and it stinks. You've tried life without the hope that He can bring. You've tried life without the strength that He can give you. You've tried life without the peace that He can give you, His peace that surpasses all understanding. It doesn't work. As life gets hard, Jesus gives us strength. As Paul tells us, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. As life gets hard, Jesus gives us peace. Paul says He can give us a peace. As we present our needs and our requests to Him, He gives us that peace that surpasses all understanding. And Jesus gives us that wonderful, loving presence of His. And no matter what we go through, He promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Amen? In my marriage, when it comes to saving the day, I'm going to probably always be a bit of a doofus. A day late and a dollar short. When it comes to saving the day, I'll probably continue to give my wife too little too late. But I'm so thankful that Jesus never is a doofus like me. He gives us exactly... Well, you don't need to say amen to that. That hurts my feelings, Maria. (laughs) Just kidding. Jesus always gives us exactly what we need. And He's never, ever late. He's never late. He's also never early. (laughs) Sometimes we're wondering, where are you? But He's never late. He's never late. And we're so thankful that when those disciples needed Him most, Jesus was right there. And they were learning, just like we're learning, that when God gives us a lesson, there will be a test. So if you lear- you've learned some things today about Jesus. You've learned some wet things about why, when you study the Word, He wants you to know about Noah or about Jonah or about walking on water or about feeding the 5,000. You've learned a little bit more about why He wants you to learn those things. He wants you to know them because you need to know them for what's coming up ahead. What's coming up ahead in some ways will be harder than anything you've ever dealt with before. But if you hide God's Word in your heart, you continue fellowshipping with the church and leaning on your brothers and sisters in Christ for those challenges that will be coming, as you continue to prioritize prayer every day and allow the Holy Spirit to speak with you and allow that communication chain with your commander-in-chief to be a smooth line of communication, a consistent line of communication, 
when that day of testing comes, you will stand. Soak it all in because there will be a test. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending us Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the lessons you teach us. We've all had our own lessons of how you multiplied five biscuits and two sardines to meet our needs. Many of us have experienced you stretching our budgets to be able to have more purchasing power than they would seem to be able to have on paper. You've put food on our tables. You've kept our rent and our mortgages paid by your grace. You've been with us through health challenges. You've been with us when family members have turned their backs on us and walked away from you. Lord, thank you for being with us every step of the way. And I pray, O oh God, that we would not miss the lessons that you teach us every week here at church and every day of our lives. Help us to soak it all in so when the day of testing and the day of persecution comes, when all else comes and goes, we will still be standing firm in our faith and confident that you will see us through. Thank you, Lord Jesus. If there's anyone here who has never accepted you as Savior and Lord, I pray right now that they would go to you in prayer and say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner and I need a Savior. Please forgive me. Please wash me clean of my sin. Come into my life. I promise not to just accept you as my Savior. I promise to choose you as my Lord, my Master. I put you in the driver's seat of my life right now. And I will follow you, love you, and obey you for the rest of my life until you call me home to heaven. In Jesus' name.